0: The most dramatic events unfolding in Europe since the end of World War II with Russia's Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, a looming Supreme Court battle with an African American woman at the center of it all, President Biden's first State of the Union address, Beto O'Rourke's political comeback as he's now the Democratic Party's standard bearer to face off against Texas Governor Greg Abbott in the fall, and the January 6th committee says it has evidence showing Trump committed crimes including obstruction and fraud while trying to overturn the election. Welcome back to the political mic. It's been a minute, but I'm glad to be back, and I'm glad to have these outstanding guests that I've had, that I have for tonight. Uh, my apologies for Professor McDougall's absence for tonight, but I'm so glad that Nate Honore, who is one of my favorite uh, guests, stepped in. Uh, so we have Mr. Nate Honore, who is a three uh, L uh, at Quinnipiac University School of Law, uh, Professor Preston Foster, who is uh, the director of the Public Policy Program at Oakwood University, graduate of the Kennedy School at Harvard. Um, and is also a contributor and founder of what should what they should say.org. We have mr stephen Foster who's also a contributor and founder of what what should they what they should say.org um, and who's also uh, another brilliant mind to have when it as it pertains to public uh, policy and global affairs. And we also have professor Fred Cook, another per, uh, favorite professor of mine uh, of Howard University School of Law, um, who is also a practicing attorney. I'm glad that uh, each of you gentlemen made f- uh, time for tonight, but I did make a promise to the viewers um, before we start diving into the uh, discussion topics, uh, there will be a giveaway. Uh, we are giving away uh, uh, politi- the Political Mike face masks. And so there was, <laughs> there was a promotion uh, in light of this episode, and I want to make good on that promise. And again, if you answer correctly, this political history trivia question, you can win a mask uh, just like this one. Um, And so I'm gonna go ahead and ask the question. And the question is, uh, which, which U.S. president convinced the U.S. Olympic Committee to refrain from competing in the 1980 Moscow Olympics in response to the Soviet Union invading Afghanistan? Which U.S. president convinced the U.S. Olympic Committee to refrain from competing in the 1980 Moscow Olympics in response? Uh, to the Soviet Union invading Afghanistan. And again, um, go ahead and um, answer in the comments. You can DM me. However, the first three will get the masks. And, and as soon as I give you confirmation that you're one of the first three, go ahead and send me uh, your mailing address so I can send you uh, this nice mask. So we're gonna go ahead and dive in. Um, you know, so much has happened since this platform has been uh, made live. Um, most recently of which uh, Russia has now um, deliberately Uh, take an action that really counters all of which, you know, specific post-World War II institutions like the United Nations were designed to prevent. Um, And so we we have President Biden getting uh, criticism from the left and the right, primarily the right as it pertains to his response. And so I want to ask you, gentlemen, what grade would you give the Biden administration in response uh, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Anyone can jump in.
1: Are you talking about just the response or the the run-up to where we are? Um, I, I think he gets a good grade, you know, for the response. Uh, but, you but, know, you that's, know that's, there's more to it than that, and, 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 and uh, that's, that's sort, of sort of what my head and my voice, voice might be. be. I, think, I, think, uh, I, I think, think he's done, he's done, done a pretty, pretty good job, job of uh, rallying uh, countries around the world to respond. Uh, in the way they have at least to what the the Russians have done, what Mr. Putin has done. But there's really not a whole lot of options uh, unless you want to engage in uh, or, or walk up to the precipice of thermonuclear war by punching the, uh, the, the Russian uh, military machine in the nose. Uh, there's not a whole lot of options beyond where um, Mr. Biden has sort of mobilized countries around the world to do. Mr. Foster, go ahead. Um,
2: and we'll, yeah. Uh, I've given. I'll give him a B B plus. Um, given um, our perspective, uh, I'll give him a B plus. Uh, and uh, uh, to uh, <clears throat> Professor Cook's uh, point, the options are limited, and uh, I think he's used uh, every. Uh, practical option there is. Uh, I think he's taking these sanctions to as far an extent as as possible uh, without um, crippling our economy um, from an from an energy standpoint uh, in particular. But um, my take on this whole thing is a little, probably a little um, off the beaten path uh, because I. I see and I I think, you know, we're 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 limited in terms of our the information that we get uh, on this side of the ocean. But I I understand I'm not defending Putin in any way, but I understand his perspective. Um, He sees NATO completely differently than we do. And uh, NATO is expanding eastward. There's no question about that. If you look at a a map of NATO countries, NATO allied countries from 40 years ago, and then compare it to that same map of NATO allied countries now. You'll see that a lot of those um, states, those small states that were once part of the USSR, are now uh, NATO countries, and they're they're moving ever eastward. So um, I think he's just taking a stand of. You know, this we're not. You're not going any further than this. Um, so, I mean, there's a lo- lot more to it, obviously, and we'll get into it. But uh, I understand his perspective, and his perspective isn't really, um, I, I think, is giving been given short short rift by our media.
3: Yeah, I kind of give him a B minus, minus. Um, and it's funny because we're brothers, but we haven't talked about this. But I see, I see it much the same way. Um, I give him a B minus because the president did signal clearly that uh, military action by the United States was off the table. And uh, although that might've been politically good politically, it's not something you necessarily do strategically um, in terms of signaling how important it is to you. I've, I've tried to distill what, what, Putin has done uh, as clearly as I can. And and basically, it's kind of like Stephen was saying, Putin invaded Ukraine before it became a NATO ally. And he saw it becoming a NATO ally as being inevitable. And this encroachment on what was the post-World War II division of the world between the winners of World War II, that is, the um, NATO allies to the west and the Warsaw Pact to the east. As Steven said, if you look at the Warsaw Pact countries, uh, Ukraine was clearly one of them. And I don't mean to, to imply at all that he owns it. But in terms of what he saw as his region of the world, we're encroaching. And once you become a NATO ally, you are then eligible for nuclear weapons to be um, uh, put on your soil in the defense of other NATO allies, and so I think Putin was doing that um, mostly for uh, uh, local consumption. When I when I say that consumption within the um, the within Russia, but also because he has a nationalistic his whole existence is built on the rebuilding of Greater greater Russia, which in his mind looks like the old USSR. It's
0: amazing to me that President Biden is twice as unpopular than Vladimir Putin is in the GOP. Um, and so you can't help but think with that, you know, fact are Republicans rooting for Putin just because uh him enroaching on this democratic country's sovereignty uh would make Biden Probably look weak in the process. Is this all looked through the lens of a political domestic agenda? And then think about when you think about Putin in terms of you know previous actions he's taken. You know he's fought the following wars: Chechnya in 1999, Georgia in 2008, Ukraine in 2014, Syria in 2015. So Putin has um, a lot of experience in wars. Uh, He's won them. He's won all of these wars, and he thinks he could win again. Um, so if Putin can weaken Biden in this process, it's another win for him. And uh, you think about the the role he played in the spread of disinformation, and you think about the role he's playing now in that in that same tactic in trying to use figures like Tucker Carlson, who's going on the air saying, "Why are we against Putin on this?" and Trump and Pompeo, who are you know basically you know being Putin's cheerleaders um, in this situation, um, and trying to portray these people as being representative of what the majority. Of the of the folks in the United States believe and feel, but um, you know, I think he and still he's failing miserably. Uh, any other thoughts?
3: Just just real quickly, because I, I do want to hear what Nathan has to say on this. But um, um, from Excellent. my point of view, one of the best things that the President did that was highly unusual is that he he basically went public with CIA information about the planned false flag operations of Russia. That's something that, that's a card you normally don't play face up. But playing that face up ahead of time, I think took Putin's plan A out of play.
1: No, yeah, I, I agree I, with that. I, I think that you know part of the the challenge here is that uh Putin is um is not really being rational. Uh that is to say, he has a worldview of Russia and its place in the world order that is inconsistent with the reality of where Russia is. I mean, it is physically the largest country on the planet, but its economy is not much bigger than that of Italy. Uh, the ability of the Russian uh, machine to influence folks around the world is significantly has been significantly diminished because they don't really have any economic power. Uh, they can't make the investments that China has made around the world. They can't make the investments that the U.S. is is making around the world. And the only way he can continue to be a player on the world stage is to threaten everybody with nuclear weapons. Uh, and it's it's a backward-looking philosophy, as as both brothers Foster have said, in terms of looking at the USSR as the paradigm he wants to get back to. But I don't know how he does it, uh, because because when you when you think about it. The Russian standing army is less than half the size of the US's army. Uh, they they don't have the military machine to, to 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 coerce people physically around the world. They don't have the economic power to coerce people around the world, but they do have those blinking missiles that they can shoot at you. And that gets everybody's attention.
4: Well, I would say, as far as the original question, the one thing Biden has done really well is organized this kind of uh, international consensus got NATO really on the same page, which is uh, huge when you consider uh, the relationship that uh, the the past administration, the Trump administration, had with NATO, where Trump uh, actively questioned the, its use, its activeness, its role, and whether or not the U.S. should continue its status as uh, first among equals within that partnership. So, for Biden to come in really within a year and completely rebuild the NATO partnership from the ground up, especially. Sorry, is that better? Uh, what I was saying for Biden to really rebuild the NATO partnership from the ground up, especially with where it was uh, with the Trump administration and how he had a very adversarial relationship with NATO. So for him to come in and really rebuild that and establish this kind of international consensus uh, is is a big deal, especially with, you know, a few months ago with uh, considering how, how angry the French were at the Biden administration a few months ago, considering the uh, Turnover of one of the U.S. most longstanding partners in Germany with the retirement of uh, Chancellor Merkel, so for Biden to actually rebuild this consensus is a big deal. So for that, he deserves credit as well as uh, the strategy of releasing the information as it came in. You know, saying Russia is uh, determined to attack, even as uh, both Russia and Ukraine were denying the imminence of an attack, uh, even as um, you know, even and how correct, really. Uh, the intelligence was American intelligence, then didn- did uh, really rebuild a lot of, you know, credibility, uh, especially as it related to the timing of the attack. So I do think this administration deserves credit for that. However, domestically, it's a little bit of a different story. Um, Biden is unpopular. There are some who think he's trying to drum up a war for, you know, to build up his popularity. There's his unpopularity within the GOP, which is a, you know, completely different issue as well. Normally, wars have been a bit more of a bipartisan business than what we're seeing now. But uh, as it, you know, as it develops, you know, there are figures in the GOP which seem determined to kind of give Biden the latitude he needs. And that's an
0: awesome point because, you know, we often think of, you know, I guess, I guess the layman's way of thinking about Putin and, and Trump is that they both wanted the same. But it's like, why are they in the same? Putin saw Trump as a useful idiot and that Trump was constantly asking publicly, why are we still in NATO? There were reports not just in Bob Woodward's books, but in other in other uh tell all books that came out of the White House uh, that indicate that Trump repeatedly bought up, you know, the the idea of pulling the United States out of NATO and Putin wanted that. Um and so you know, I often thought when this thing was unfolding last week especially, you know, why did Putin wait until Biden, Biden's presidency, why didn't he do this when conditions seemed to be more favorable to him? Being that Trump was um, more in a like doing the policies that he was enacting in terms of trying to take us out of multilateral agreements was more in alignment with what Putin's goal was. Um, And so, my only conclusion, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you guys have any other perspective on this, is that, you know, after he found, after he saw Trump not get a second term, he knows that time is of the essence. you know, this, of course, is part of this campaign to rebuild the USSR, What you know, what it was when the Soviet Union fell down, like, in the early 1990, 1990s, late 80s. And, you know, I'm just thinking about the fact that there are reports of people taking memorandums off Trump's desk um, to try to get his mind away from it until Trump would kind of bring it back up a few weeks or months later. Um, because, you know, even... You know just to touch base on something else in the geopolitical arena, there were reports of him constantly asking why why do we have United States uh you know personnel still in Korea? why do we need to have station guards by the 39th parallel? You know, all these this this lack of understanding of US history post World War II was playing right into Putin's hands. Um and so in Biden's speech, you know, that took place uh this this week uh this was President Biden's biggest stage Uh, of the past year, a chance to vouch to a wide audience for what his administration has accomplished. Um, It was also an opportunity to try to turn around his own poor poll numbers, you know, and I often say, you know, when it comes down to polling, to really look at the trends, you got to look at trends. If, you know, if you see something going consistent for like two or three months, then you're kind of seeing something. Uh, But, you know, whatever the flavor of the week is, is not really a good indicator of uh, the popular consensus. Look at things from a perspective of, is is this going on for a period of multiple months? And this it this has you know this 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 tanking poll number has been um, something that has been uh, eating away at Biden for at least since uh, this, the Afghanistan withdrawal. Um, and so you know this was an opportunity to try to turn around those numbers and rescue. Re- I'm sorry, reassure Democrats uh, who are nervous about their party's chances in in 2022 midterms. Um, what are your thoughts on Biden's speech? Uh, do you, because what was also, also notable. No- was that that? um, he did not call out Republicans or conservatives who are voicing Voicing. kind of support for Vladimir Putin in this campaign. Um, He also didn't do something like, you know, stand up if you're for democracy, right? Right. Stand up if you're you're in Ukraine or or remain seated if you support what Putin is doing. You know, he didn't put them in an uncomfortable position And I was wondering if you guys think that that was a missed opportunity
2: there. Yeah, I think it was a missed opportunity, but it's an uh, it was an understandable miss because uh, to your point, he is uh, working with a weak political hand domestically. And uh, so uh, he was aware of that. So, of course, he ran as a unifier and uh, we are um almost at war uh, we, we all but at war and so I, I think he uh was trying to not be um uh overtly div- divisive by not doing that um uh and i think um putin um to an earlier point that you just raised i think putin's calculus um has there's some element of um, him understanding that he has um, some kind of latent support among um, Republicans. He has, uh, if not latent support, that the United States is so divided politically that he could make this move now and uh, not necessarily face a united, not only un, a united allied front, but also not necessarily face a united United States front. So I, I think that was part, I think that's part of his calculus. I mean, we can't, it's hard to get into Putin's head. But I'm also a little, I'm, I'm a little, um, more than a little concerned about uh, how this is playing out. From a uh, stand from a standpoint of um, I don't know P- I don't I don't think PR is the is the is the proper terminology but Putin has become a pariah now um, to the to the to the quote unquote free world and I don't see how he rehabilitates himself um, to the rest of the world I don't see how that's how that's possible now I mean. You know we're 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 seeing we're seeing the the displacement of uh, you know uh, so far I think a million uh, Ukrainians and you know we're seeing videos of the of the bombing and all that kind of stuff. I don't see how he rehabilitates his image and um, you know having him having him as a pariah makes him really dangerous i mean you know he's he was dangerous before uh, be, you know but uh, because of the nuclear weapons that he that he possesses but but being being a, a permanent pariah where he is never going to be um seen as a rational uh, or a uh, uh, a rational player again on the world scene i mean it's just that uh, <laughs> that, that that uh, portends some some shaky stuff, from my perspective.
3: Yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, interesting because that. on Ukraine, basically the liberals are the hawks, and the conservatives are more so the doves. And liberals don't really know how to be good hawks. I mean, the last liberal hawk, good liberal hawk, was Scoop Jackson, and most people don't even know who I'm talking about. So um, uh, we don't liberals don't play that hawkish hand well, and uh, we're on this and and Nathan and Mike, this will sound familiar to you we're on on this continuum of diplomacy, where if you have peace on one side, where we've used sanctions here about as strongly as they've ever been used, which will cause not only his. Um, moral isolation, but his economic isolation, and and as Dr. Cook pointed out, uh, the economy of Russia is basically the same size as the economy of the state of New York. So uh, Russia is not a world player uh, economically, and they cannot afford to have a major recession, which has already begun there, which again makes Putin more dangerous. but I, I I believe that um, the way we got here being, being um, and, and this will be highly unpopular amongst most of my people, but um, in my mind, this new Putin, this emboldened Putin started basically in 2014 when uh, President Obama led him off the hook with Syria, and allowed Russia to be the intervener. Uh, To me, that's kind of like asking Barzini to help the Corleone's with Tattaglia. You know, it just, it doesn't work. Um, (laughs) So, um, uh, and and you'd have to be a a Godfather fan to get that, but study up. Um, But but President uh, Obama, let Putin know that democratic presidents do not respond to strength with strength. And um, I think that I'm not a war hawk, but the the track record of appeasement is also a record of danger.
1: No, I, I agree with you there, Brother Foster. Um, I think, you know, whether, whether many folk in the black community like it or not, Mr. Obama's failure to confront Putin, Mr. Putin, in 2014 is a significant contributor to this situation where we find the countries today. Mr. Putin is a very, uh, has always demonstrated himself to be a very strategic thinker, a very strategic guy. Too much of what uh, American politics are about tend to be tactical and, and, and fit the moment as opposed to looking at the big picture. And what Mr. Putin saw was a weakness and an unwillingness on the part of the United States writ large to respond to his exertion of power for fear of whatever. And I think he reads the division in the country as being very useful for his strategic purposes. That, again, it, 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 it inhibits the ability of any particular U.S. president, however strong he or she may feel, From actually acting because you can't get the you can't rally the support. Because he knows that internally here in this country, it's more important to harm your political enemy than it is to appear to be strong around the world. Because all they want to do is get power. So I think he's thought this through in a way that is very advantageous to his strategic vision, but I think it's difficult to impossible for him to realize his strategic vision. Because I think there are certain other externalities that he didn't factor into. I don't think he factored into, the, factored into the equation, the response of the rest of the world to the United States request, Joe Biden's request to be of assistance to try to turn him into a pariah to isolate him. But once he gets really isolated, once you do all you can do to him except bomb Moscow, then I think you're absolutely right. you got a very dangerous guy because there's nothing... He, he can never get invited to dinner with the Queen of, of, of England. He, he's not going to be invited to, 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 the, to, to Versailles to, to chit-chat with the president of France. He is done on that level. And so once he knows he can't do that and he can't get into his yacht and ride around in the, in the Black Sea or, 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 or to go to Cannes because they're going to confiscate his boat. So, so what has he got to lose? Why, why can't he be the biggest jerk that you ever saw? Let
0: me let me push back a little bit on what Professor Boston and Professor Cook just said. I thought about this in terms of, you know, going back to 2014, you know, did President Obama, you know, fumble the ball here? And, and is that why? Or I mean, I'm, let me ask you, is it that or is it the fact that when Trump was elected in 2016, before Trump was even sworn in, before he put his hand on the Bible, Michael Flynn was already making phone calls in December of 2016, uh, telling uh, the his or what would be his counterpart in Russia. Don't worry, once we get in there, we're gonna take away those sanctions. Um, is that like, which one um, contributed more to the situation that's going on now?
1: They're all so the same, same things. They're all they're the all same, same thing. thing. Because, because, because because Mr. Putin and his, his apparatus has always been trying to subvert the ability of the United States to, to respond to him. Donald Trump did not get elected solely because of Mr. Putin, but his participation helped. Part of this confusion that exists in this division exists is at the behest of the Russian infrastructure. So it's all of a piece for him. And like I said, he's very strategic. He has always been trying to figure out a way to undermine this thing because he knows that Russia can never compete with the United States economically. It can never compete with the United States in the, the, the position it holds in the world. He's got to destroy it from the inside out. He's never going to confront it from the outside in.
4: I'd say it's a bit of both. Um, part of uh, Putin does have a relation does have an understanding with President Biden, because Biden was vice president during the uh, uh, Crimea annexation, which kind of of this whole conflict with Ukraine in the first place. He was president during the vice president during the Arab Spring, which which led to the Syrian civil war, where uh, President Obama ultimately conceded uh, Syria to Russia. So, uh, understanding that and understanding that Obama didn't uh, push back at him hard enough led him to probably believe that Joe Biden also wouldn't, especially because Joe Biden isn't the generational politician the way Obama is. Biden doesn't have the ability to. bring in large uh, swaths of the American population simply based off of charisma. Biden doesn't have Obama's charisma. That's, you know, well attested. But it's also the fact that uh, he did have someone who was uh, much more aligned with his goals and interests in Trump. So they're both blended, but that starts it starts with Obama's uh, unwillingness to push back against uh, Putin's actions in 2014.
3: And, and this, again, is, is controversial, but I believe that in 2016, Putin's campaign was almost, almost as much a, anti-Hillary, anti-Hillary as it was pro-Trump, because Hillary was the Secretary of State in Obama's first administration. She was hawkish towards uh, Russia. Um, some of us have been called on to eat some crow this week, because if you re- recall, uh, Mitt Romney said famously in that uh, 2012 debate that Russia was the biggest strategic threat to the United States. It turns out to be right, not because Russia is necessarily positioned to be the biggest strategic threat, but uh, because Putin is a former um, KGB agent who's uh, hyper-aggressive uh, and will push the envelope unless it's, it's unless someone pushes back and again, I don't I think Putin's calculus is that democratic presidents won't push back. And uh Trump was extremely useful in dividing NATO and causing um NATO allies to question the uh the uh their confidence in the United States as police of the world. So I, I just believe that uh, Putin is uh, convinced that he can have his way in the eastern half of the 1945
0: world. Yeah, could you could you imagine? Um, I just wanted before Mr. Foster, uh, before Mr. Stephen Foster, you jump in. If Jesse Holmes was still alive, <laughs> I'm sorry, Jesse Helms, who was the uh, chairman of the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee before Biden, right? Hawk from the 1980s, 1990s. I mean. Could you, and not just him, but other Republicans who prided themselves in standing up to a, a autocratic regime and 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 freedom and supporting freedom and all these things, It's so topsy turvy now. Professor Foster mentioned the Hawks. Of, I mean, the, the Hawks are the doves, and the doves are the Hawks now. If these folks raised from the dead for just one day, you know, you can't help but think, what would they say, Mr. Foster?
2: Yeah, <clears throat> I was just gonna. <clears throat> Parking back a little bit on uh, what Obama did um, relative to Syria, that really wasn't a, a matter of standing up to Putin um, because Putin kind of Obama permitted Putin to let him off the hook. Re- remember, Obama had had indicated that uh, there was there was a, a, a line. That uh red a red line that uh they can't cross, uh the Syrians can't cross uh relative to uh I think chemical uh WMD. And they crossed that line and he let Putin um kind of uh be the go-between. Um so that really wasn't a standing up to Putin. It was a use he would used Putin, but Putin actually used him. Um you know that's that's really what happened, and, and um, so I mean there are there might there may have been other times, and I'm thinking of Crimea, where 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 um, President Obama didn't stand up to Putin, but um, that Syria incident was was not quite that. Well,
1: so what else go ahead, and, go ahead. And, and the and the okay. right winger. I mean, I'm not sure how they would respond because those guys were like they hated commies, okay. And the challenge right now is Putin is not a commie. Uh, you know, uh, Mike Pompeo was being fawning over Putin like Donald Trump did and was being chased down the hall, I think, in one of the Senate office buildings. and was asked by a reporter, well, did you think your comments about Mr. Putin were helping him and supporting him in his thing in in, in the Ukraine? And Mike Pompeo says, looks at me, he's very stern. He says, I fought communists since I was 16 years old. Now the problem with that response is it's not responsive because Putin is not a communist Putin is an autocrat Putin is a, is a gangster thug oligarch okay but 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 their brain is still stuck on we got to fight communists and he's not a communist and I think I think many of these so-called hawks would be very confused about well what do, well, what do, do we with do with this him? guy because he looks like us in the sense that and that's where you get this whole right-wing Christian nationalist thing, he's a strong guy, he's masculine, he's trying to preserve his people, and they get really kind of twisted into well, maybe that's not such a bad place to be, we kind of like that kind of guy, because he's not saying, you know, that the government has to control all the means of production and distribution, he's saying, you know, go out, get rich, make a lot of money, and keep those others out of your country.
2: Yeah, that's, that's it. See, r- Putin is not a Bolshevik, you know, Putin is by no means a Bolshevik. So, um, you know, though, and, and I think a lot of the right wing now, thanks to Trump, understand that. They get that. That's why the pushback is not what it would have been had Jesse Helms and those uh, staunch anti-communists been around now. Um, it, it's, it's not anything, not, not anywhere near it because... They recognize now that Putin is actually um, a white nationalist. I mean, he's a nationalist <laughs> and he's a white nationalist, obviously. But, uh, you know, and and he has some theocratic overtones, you know, to his to his rhetoric. Um, you know, he some of that cultural stuff. You know, he sings the same song out of the same hymnal they do. So I, I think they recognize that now. But. Um, they see that this is blatant, um, and unprovoked aggression, and uh, you know, NATO, we are NATO, and so it, it, they're in a tough place, um, ideologically now, uh, to, to Professor Cook's point. And another thing that, oh, Professor Foster, go ahead and unmute yourself,
3: he used um, by Putin as his red line, meaning that. Uh, NATO, you're not coming past this line. Uh, He's drawn his line to protect, in his mind, the Eastern empire from the Western empire. And as Stephen said earlier, the Western empire has been growing eastward. So uh, from his point of view, uh, politically, uh, it looks like I'm protecting us from the Western invaders, who basically reneged on what was agreed to in terms of spheres of control and influence?
0: Yeah, and, and even in Biden's speech when he said, "You know, we will defend every inch, every inch of of NATO territory," um, taking a strong, you know, making a get making a clear, you know, message to Putin that if you plan on carrying this agenda and this campaign of yours. Further and further, like we're talking about the democratic states that were liberated in the 1990s and were established, uh, you're going to, you're, you're in for a rude awakening. But what's also interesting is that um, Biden also kind of made some, in my mind, some concessions to the right in in that Biden was saying, look, we need to fund the police. Uh, we need to, He he emphasized the need to secure our borders. I mean, and of course, this is all, you know, political chess being that we're some months out from the midterms. And, you know, in addition to the inflation that's going on, in addition to Republicans making this caricature of Democrats being soft or or incompetent when it comes down to foreign affairs, as evident by the chaotic, you know, Afghan withdrawal, uh, Biden is kind of positioning folks to say, look, go out and campaign on the fact that, yeah, we want your border secure, but we differ on how to secure them. Yeah, we want the police to be funded, but we also want there to be some accountability Uh, In the streets, so that uh, black mothers and fathers are not experiencing, you know, the the death of their children from from some hot headed cop, right? So he's going out there and making this case for the Democratic Party to take the lead from. Uh, But it kind of reminded me of Bill Clinton's 1996 uh, uh, State of the Union. I think it was 96. I think that was his longest state, the or the longest State of the Union address, where he said the era of big government is over, and he got arousing applause from the Republicans. When I saw Ted Cruz and, and Mike Lee stand up <laughs> to Biden saying we're going to fund the police, that just kind of brought my mind back to, to that moment. But I want to get your, your, your thoughts. Did Biden concede to the right in saying that we need to fund the police and, and emphasizing the need to secure our borders?
4: He did in the sense that, uh, you know, Democrats weren't running on defund the police. That was a very, it wasn't, really an academic proposal that various activists were proposing that uh, conservative activists then took and ran with it as, as the big attack line. It, I, there still really isn't much evidence that it's what cost the Democrats the majority, despite what Jim Clyburn wants everyone to believe. But, you know, it worked very well as an attack line. the Democrats not only aren't good hawks, they don't counterpunch well either. You know, they're not, they don't play defense well. They don't really play offense well either. They kind of just, they, they sit there. And so, you know, the fact that so many Democratic incumbents, who, by the way, most of the Democratic incumbents which lost were uh, from the Biden wing of the party that didn't support defund the police, as opposed to the AOC, Cory, Bush, uh, Ayanna Pressley wing that said, hey, maybe we should hear these people out, is that... The reason they lost their seats is because they didn't have anything to say in response other than, no, I don't. And once it becomes he said, he said, she said, the person who speaks up first is the one who gets believed. So it was a concession in that sense. And it's also a concession in the sense that Biden's un- Biden is the one who ran as the consensus builder. Uh, you know, everyone likes Joe was the whole thing, you know. And since everyone currently does not like Joe, he's trying to rebuild that, what he views as that sensible center. Uh, which he views as the key to his key to a winning majority. So it was a good speech from that standpoint. But the you know things that didn't get addressed were the Democratic priorities. Uh, Biden didn't say abortion during his speech. You know he, he still hasn't said said the word abortion during his presidency. He mentioned that women's rights to choose are under attack. But a woman's right to choose what? You know a woman's right to choose is five words. Abortion is one. So you can't even make the time saving argument because abortion is you know one simple word. Uh, And he also didn't address his key constituency, the constituency that not only handed him the White House, but handed him the Democratic nomination. He didn't talk very much about what he's done for black voters. He didn't focus on the child tax credit, which has, which he claims has lifted, which has, and which has lifted black uh, people, well, Americans of all stripes, but especially black Americans out of poverty. And he barely touched on the fact that he has nominated the first black woman to the Supreme Court. So this was a a speech for rebuilding the sensible center, but not the speech for rebuilding his support among the constituency he really needs, which is black voters.
1: Oh, Professor Cook, unmute. Yeah, but that's not what the State of the Union speech is. I mean, you're talking about a convention speech for rallying the party, that's different than a State of the Union speech. I think the State of the Union speech, to borrow a legal phrase, is largely bullshit, but that's what he did, and okay, you know, but, but I don't, I don't think there's much utility in critiquing it or analyzing it because it's a nothing burger. What, 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 what really needs to get focused on is what is he doing or not doing, irrespective of his speech. Uh, And he said a lot of crazy stuff that people say in these speeches, but, but I think he is much more deserving of critique about the policies that he has implemented, the the policies he's pushed and the policies, quite frankly, he has not pushed that are going to affect the constituents that he might expect would vote for him.
0: Yeah, and and it goes without mention that you know a lot of people were saying he needs a reset, uh, you know, being that Joe Manchin went on Fox and said, "Look, I just can't do, I can't do this. I can't support the build back better agenda." Right? So the speech was often uh b- before he even spoke talked about in terms of this chance to kind of bring back bits and pieces of that agenda without using the framework, without using the title, Build Back Better, and kind of trying to get this piecemeal agenda through. Um, so, you know, he's ta- he talked about lowering prescription drug costs. You know, that's something that, you know, older conservative folks are all 100% for. And, and, and you know, Democrats don't really have, you know, they're, they're like, they're for healthcare. So they're not going to oppose that. So it's like, that was something that could get bipartisanship. And, and then the making childcare more affordable, raising taxes on the wealthy. And he says, you know, I'm not trying to punish anybody, you know, but, you know, play, pay your fair share, as he says, um, fighting climate change, trying to really take the soft in the middle approach, trying to leaning in hard on what people say that Biden's, what why Biden voted for, I mean, why people voted for Biden. They say, we didn't vote for an FDR, according to Republican senators, uh we didn't vote for Biden to be an FDR. We wanted him to be this kind of squishy moderate uh figure that can make us a little comfortable um so that in four years we can put Trump back in again. And so it's it's strange because, you know, at the same time, you know, he's trying to get these big bold agenda items through. But you know, it's like he, he is like uh Lyndon Johnson said, I'd rather have folks, you know, inside you fill in the blank out and outside in, and he has got folks in his own party uh, who are sabotaging him. And you would not see this happen if we had a Republican president, like they were all in lockstep with that 2017 tax cut. Not one, not one person stood out and said, you know, this is going to really do damage to the economy. I want to, you know, I think we're taking, I think we're moving with this bill too fast. I think we need to pull the brakes a little bit and and, and and look at these. Not one Republican would do that, right? But when it comes down to the Democrats, all of a sudden we get folks like Manchin, Cinema who wanna stop everything and, 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 and you know, even the, the fact that Manchin's sitting with Republicans is symbolic of, <laughs> to me, where he stands. Go
3: ahead. My, my, can you imagine Lyndon Johnson allowing Joe, like Manchin, Joe Manchin to stop, stop. his agenda? I mean, th- th- think about this. Lyndon Johnson ran for president and got re-elected the year he signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. There has never been a Civil Rights Act more controversial than that. That's what ended Jim Crow. And he, the way to be a good moderate is to run hard to the left and hard to the right. This walking... Uh, meekly down the middle, is, a, is attractive to no one. So um, unless the president is ready to use his bully pulpit to satisfy the people who put him in the White House, and all we're really asking for is to get back to sea level with uh, voting rights. <laughs> I mean, we're asking to get back to pre-2013 uh um, um, levels of enforcement by the federal government for voting rights. I mean, that doesn't seem to be like a, a really radical agenda, yet Joe Manchin is allowed to pump the president publicly and Kristen Cinema. I, I just can't imagine Lyndon Johnson letting them walk out of the White House and live. Kristen
0: Cinema does not, and I, you know, I know folks might look at this years later, <laughs> but, <laughs> but to me, this is Sinema does not belong in the United States Senate. Even the, when the cabinet's walking down the aisle and she's just tackily, just like, what are you doing there? Honestly.
1: Wait, 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 but how does, how does Kristen Cinema not belong in the Senate? Because and, she, and Tommy Tubb and Tommy Tuberville does belong in the Senate. Oh, I, I never said he did. <laughs> I mean, there's a <laughs> yeah. bunch of oh, foes, those no. that don't belong in the Senate. Christian <laughs> sentiment just happens to be one
0: of them. Well, I'm saying you're a Democrat, right? The, the 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 bar is so low for Republicans that I'm not even expecting some kind of. I'm talking about you. You're, you took the, the the DNC's campaign money. You took it, and you're not having any kind of uh, a town hall back home. You're not doing anything with that money. You know, you're, you're not living through the platform. platform. You you're not you're not. It's kind of like you know, you, you know, Southerners would say, you, you, you're not sticking with the folks that brought you to the dance, and then you're ste- you're stepping on the other folks' foot. So who who are you for at the end? Like, what are you, what are you running on when it's time to to, to knock on doors and ask for donations again? Um, but you know, to Pro- Professor Foster's point, voting rights. Yes, yeah, I mean that got a passing mention um, in in, in uh, President Biden's State of the Union. He said the most fundamental right in America is the right to vote and to have it counted, and it's under assault. In state after state, new laws have been passed, not only to suppress the vote. Um, and so, you know, he didn't double down on that. He didn't emphasize why, you know, to me, if I was you know, in the Biden administration, correct me if I'm wrong, I would actually uh, advocate for taking a piece of the John Lewis bill, say the pre-clearance clause, right? The, the part of the bill that says every state that had a history of discrimination has to double check with the, the DOJ um, in order to implement new changes. Just take that one piece and run on it. Like make that the center of the campaign for this year, and 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 then once you get that passed, then we can focus on the rest of the legislation. But let's get this one part of the legislation in first, and then we'll get the rest done.
3: I'm sorry, I'm so animated on this, but the the, the Democrats should have been just showing America exactly what happened the, the month, month after, after the clearance line. was declared un- unconstitutional. It's the very states that were under pre that immediately started suppressing black votes. And I mean, that's been an easy narrative to tell, but if you're embarrassed by
1: where you stand, maybe you shouldn't be standing there. Well, you know, I mean look Joe Biden is is a by all accounts a nice guy. A, a kind of guy you'd like to sit around and have a beer with and shoot the breeze with that kind of stuff. But if you look at his history, and he's got Got a long period of years in public life, he has very seldom started off at the right place, as far as I'm concerned. He oftentimes lines up at the right place, but he does not start off at the right place because it's intuitively not not his. He believes, I think, that what he says, that he believes that voting is important and voting rights are important, but he does not believe that it's worth fighting for The way you and I, the people on this this thing called this this Zoom call, believe he doesn't. He's not invested in it that way because he's much more invested in the club that is the United States Senate, in getting along and horse trading around the edges, but really not not focusing on it. And 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 so you know, I don't dislike Joe Biden. I think that he is just. uh, Lyndon Johnson was an example of this. I think. When the, when the country is in very difficult times, you need a great leader, and sometimes that leader is identifiable before the crisis happens, and, and you can say, well, you need him or her because they are a great leader, and sometimes the circumstances create great leadership. Joe Biden does not have that extraordinary ability. It doesn't make him a horrible human being, but he is not an extraordinary person who is going to rise to the occasion and confront the crises that exist in his country at the moment. That's just not who he is he's a get along, go along the get along kind of guy. Let's all sit together and try to work this out. And if the other guy is really tougher than Joe, when I say tougher, not because he's got some institutional flaw, but the other guy is really more tough minded than Joe and has a strategy that that is going to make Joe stop, he'll stop. I, it's just who he is. And it's unfortunate for where we are as a society, as we are where we are as a country, where poor and minority people are in this country, that we don't have that kind of leadership that is sort of uh, uh, transformational but but that's not who he is.
0: Yep. Mr. Foster
1: Yeah uh,
2: the evidence of that of course was his failure to bring Manchin and cinema along. that was that's the evidence of that. I mean uh, but we need to not ignore the pink elephant in the room. The Democrats are playing a very weak political hand because this is not 1964 you know the, when in 1964 there were a lot of white democrats <laughs> in the south even <laughs> you know i mean i mean now the democratic party exists only because of pr- practically unanimous black support 40% of white people vote democrat Sixty percent of white people vote Republican. I mean, you can go back as far as you want to go in in uh, in recent presidential history. And, you know, th- that's clear. And it's and it's and it's, uh, you know, Trump began to Trump began to realize and capitalize on that. But that's that's the inherent weakness of the Democratic Party. Joe Cinema lives or represents a state. And I've mentioned this before uh, on here, but he represents a, uh, represents a state where, you know, the, the black population is about three or four percent, you know, so he, he doesn't get elected by black people. And, uh, you know, we 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 ignore this, but this has ripple effects. And this is why the Democratic um, agenda is always in jeopardy. Um, and this is uh, this is the inherent. Apparently, we can that uh, Joe Biden plays. But to Professor Cook's point, a more transformational, even white leader uh, in the Democratic Party may perhaps, um, you know, even a, a younger uh, image um, would have might, might have been able to uh, might have been able to do this. But, you know, we hired Joe Biden to do one thing. And he's done that one thing.
0: And so I I want to talk about uh, the Supreme Court uh, fight that's about to take place. I know the hearings are about to start on the 21st of this month. Um, What was interesting about this situation was that, you know, of course, President Biden, um, well, going back to the the election of last, of of 2020, uh, Jim Clyburn, according to the accounts by Bob Woodward in his latest work, uh, Rage, I'm sorry, um, not Rage, um, latest book, I have it with me, uh, peril, um, and this was also this account was also corroborated in other situations, um, where you know they're at the South Carolina debate, right? Joe Biden is fighting for his political life. We didn't get to the South Carolina primary yet. We had just got through uh, New ha- uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, and Jim Clyburn at the in the break, the commercial break, makes a beeline to President Biden. Buttigieg tries to come and intervene and try to. Tries to greet Congressman Clyburn, he kind of sidesteps him out the way and tells Biden, if you don't make this promise, um, you know, your candidacy is basically going to tank. You need to go out there and say you're going to choose a black woman for the Supreme Court. And Joe Biden goes out and does that. Right. And so he he has made good on that promise, despite the the uproar of criticism from the right, um, that you know, this is um like affirmative action. This is, you know, the very thing that they oppose because it is. this is not about the content of her character. This is about the fact that she is a Black woman. And, you know, they they were making up all kinds of uh, opposition in, to to Biden's decision to do this. Now, what made this also interesting is that Lindsey Graham comes out and says, I'm with Jim Clyburn. I want to get Michelle Childs on the court. <laughs> and And so I think in my mind, he did that to kind of, put Biden on blast to kind of say, look, you're about bipartisanship. I am I just endorse somebody that someone who's in your ear has also put their, you know, support behind. And so if you oppose me in this, then you're not looking for bipartisanship. You're looking for your own liberal, radical left agenda, right? Now, what was also interesting is that Biden is a very personal uh, politician. Everything is about, you know, relationships. And so what I read was that, um, you know, biden made a joke after the election and says i'm the dog that finally caught the car and lindsey graham laughs and they try and then biden says what happened to us lindsey we used to be friends and then you know they start to talk and lindsey graham says i am your friend and then lindsey graham says but if if um ivanka trump or if eric trump did what hunter did and biden says okay that's it and that's it the relationship is over cut him off so i think that played a role in the fact that biden's like i really don't even it's kind of like Forgive me for you know making this crass uh, reference, but it's kind of like putting his middle finger up at, at Lindsey Graham and saying you know I'm not I'm not interested in your bipartisanship. I'm choosing who I want for this position, and so we've got Judge Katanji Brown, who sits on the appeals for the D.C. Circuit, who who had Merrick Garland's seat ironically, who was robbed of that nomination, <laughs> robbed of that process. Uh, what are your thoughts on this new justice? Um, you know she was confirmed with bipartisan support for the current position she has on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit just last year. Um, What are your thoughts?
1: I want to see her LSAT scores.
0: (laughs) I I, I heard Tucker Carlson. My response to Tucker Carlson is I want to see Tucker Carlson's first grade report card scores.
1: (laughs) All of us who are burdened with a law degree know that the LSAT score is important until the day you go to law school. And after that, nobody cares what your LSAT score is. <laughs> after the first day, it's irrelevant. But look, Ketanji Brown is a, is an eminently qualified, overqualified, you know, because the bar to be a, a Supreme Court justice is unfortunately remarkably low because most people don't realize it. You don't even have to be a lawyer. I mean, so it's, it's, it's incredibly low. It's whatever a majority of the U.S. Senate says it is. I mean, if they want you in, you're in but she is certainly qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. And the Republicans are going to continue to do what they do uh, to fight this because it's in their political interest to play racial and gender politics. You know, we talk about, I mean, you know, and I hate to do this to you, Mike. You you said she was elected with selected with the bipartisanship. It was 53 to 47. That's not bipartisan. That's, you know, that's just that's working around the edges. There's no real commitment to it. But, but 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 none of these Republicans will suffer any negative consequences for harassing this woman, voting against this woman. None of them, and it may wind up that there'll be 53 more votes this time. Okay, that's fine. But I don't give. I don't give Susan Collin. I don't give L- 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 Murkowski. I don't give uh, uh, Mitt Romney. I don't give any of them any credit for doing something that they should have done anyway. They don't get any credit from me for that. There's no bravery in that.
4: Well, I'm really glad it was Judge Jackson and not, <clears throat> excuse me, Judge Childs. Um, personally, you know, Judge, uh, Judge Jackson's rulings have been have fallen a little bit more on the progressive side. Uh, she's been, she is someone who's been a past public defender. She's someone who has, whose rulings have been very. Uh, pro defendant. They've been very pro labor. So, you know, I'm happy about that. It's also interesting that you mention uh, Merrick Garland because uh, Judge Jackson was actually also under consideration for that same seat. The only reason Obama went with Garland was because Garland was the one he thought Republicans would, were more likely to confirm. Garland was, you know, on the wrong side of 60. He was someone who was known as an incredibly moderate judge. So for a seat that would have tilted the balance of the Supreme Court five-four liberal appointees, Garland was the kind of guy who you could expect to be a swing vote in the style of uh, Kennedy or Sandra Day O'Connor. Uh, ultimately, I think Biden should have uh, Obama should have uh, selected Jackson anyway. That would have gotten the base a little more fired up than you know your average Merrick Garland, who today gets the Democratic base fired up for all the wrong reasons. But. Uh, It's interesting. I give Biden credit for not kind of uh, bending to the pressure of selecting uh, uh, Judge Childs because Clyburn and uh, Graham had kind of created this environment where anyone but Childs is unconfirmable. Uh, Instead, however, uh, Biden kind of understood, I guess, in the back of his head, and this is something else where his experience plays in because his two uh, big uh, areas of expertise in the Senate was judges and foreign policy. Uh, He said, you know what, I can't actually trust the Republicans are going to vote the way Lindsey Graham is saying they're going to vote. We don't need 60 votes to put a judge in the Supreme Court. we we'll only need 50 plus one. So if Judge Jackson only gets 50 plus one, and I know for a fact, uh, uh, you know, Joe and Kirsten aren't going to do anything crazy, I can, you know, put whoever I want. You know, he could have even put uh, Justice Krueger from California, uh, who's only 45, you know, and that would have been the kind of, you know, uh, decision... That he could have made, even if it wouldn't have been incredibly popular with certain uh, segments of the right. Now, the big thing for uh, Judge Jackson with me is that she's only 51. You know, she—if she serves in uh, 27 years, which is the length of time that Justice Ginsburg served—I think it's also the length of time that Justice Breyer served. She won't even be 80 years old. That's some—that's somebody who you can get who can be the lead, who can be the torchbearer of the court's liberal wing for a very long time. Someone who can write uh Opinions that one day become the majority opinion and therefore the law, um, and she is someone who's eminently qualified. You know, she checked, she ticks off all the right boxes. She's a double Harvard grad. She was law review editor. Uh, she has uh, she has a big law history. She's been a public defender. She has passed Senate confirmation. I think that was the tiebreaker for her because she's the only person on the shortlist who has been confirmed to a judgeship by this Senate. So I think that's what kind of put her over. Uh, Childs or Kruger. And it's interesting,
0: you know, when I look at things like this, I can't help but look at the irony throughout history in that, um, you know, Biden, of course, was the former chair of the Judiciary Committee. Um, and, you know, he's gotten a lot of heat, you know, his whole, his history, you know, his in the Senate as a presidential candidate three times, I mean, I mean, the, the, the last two times after 1988, 2008 and 2020, You know, he got a lot of heat about the way he handled the Anita hearing, the Anita Hill confirmation, the Anita Hill allegations, right? So now here we have redemption in that it is not a symbolic, you know, kind of like move. This is like something that's concrete. This is like, this is a lifetime appointment, and he's giving it to a Black woman. Um, And in that way, it's kind of like almost like a move to redeem himself in that sense. for a lot of people, including Anita Hill, who s- still say to this day that you know he hasn't apologized, uh, the way he should have apologized, right? So, that being said, I just wanted to throw that in there. Anyone else,
1: yeah? I, yeah, I... also kept uh, Judge uh, uh, Judge uh, uh oh god, Rogers, uh, from possibly being the first black female Supreme Court justice. Uh, She was a a justice on the California Supreme Court. Uh, They brought her out here to put her on the circuit court as a way on on the DC circuit as a way to get her to the Supreme Court. But it took a, uh, an agreement of the gang of 14, 14 senators decided that they would not vote to filibuster uh, a bunch of judgeships, including uh, Judge Brown um it, again it's part of Joe's history. I mean, I think he, I think he behaved shamefully with respect to the need Hill Manor. I mean, I lived through it. You know, I I worked on the part of the team. He was shameful. Uh and he has not really uh sort of acknowledged how badly he behaved and re- expressed true regret for it. I mean, he he said the political thing, well, I, it really wasn't a, a good day for me kind of thing. But it was awful what he's done. So you know, he 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 isn't this champion. I, I think his I think his his cr- people around him, Ron Klain and Al, decided a long time ago that Ketanji Brown was going to be the Supreme Court nominee to fill his uh, promise made to uh, Jim Clyburn. And all this other noise around Judge Shiles, around Judge Kruger, uh, Mike Taylor would appreciate this. Our dean at the School of Law at the Howard University's name was floated around. All that was all atmospherics. It was fine. But he wasn't, but but Ron Klain knew what Joe Biden knew, what, what, what Mr. Honore said. You can't trust the Republicans. Do not give them the opportunity to jam you when the when the votes come down. So if it's 50, 50, and this and the vice president breaks the tie, that's good enough. And and, I, and and that was always, I think, Ron Klain's strategy. And he's sort of Joe Biden's brain on this.
0: Professor you Foster, know. how's Mr. McConnell gonna behave this spring?
3: Uh, predictably, I mean, they're they're going to put up a full, a uh, good fight. They're going to raise a lot of money off of fighting Judge Brown Jackson, um, uh, e- even if they lose. Uh, and you see, I I qualified that because I don't have full confidence that that even this will happen. It should happen. There's no reason why it shouldn't. But uh, Mitch McConnell you can be sure we'll be taking his cuts. And if there's a way to sabotage it, he will be prepared to do it. So I I don't really count this, and please don't get me wrong, I'm happy with Judge Brown Jackson's nomination. She deserves it fully. She's overqualified. But I don't see this as an accomplishment. I see this as a political payback that was due. Clyburn gave Joe Biden the presidency, period, for that promise. Uh I will be impressed when we get voting rights passed. Um uh fulfilling a promise that you alone are are pos- positioned to fulfill is not a major accomplishment. It's it's minimalism. Yes.
0: And, and what's also interesting, as we're concluding the show, is that the January 6th committee uh, says it found evidence showing that Trump committed crimes, including obstruction and fraud, while trying to overturn the election. The House Select Committee investigating the Capitol riots said in a new court filing uh, today that it believes former President Donald Trump's uh, efforts to overturn the election uh, resulted in and viol- result- I'm sorry, violated several laws. The panel said that the evidence is ga- that it gathered so far. Uh, suggests that the former president tried to obstruct an official proceeding conspired to defraud the united states and engaged in common law fraud uh, the facts we've gathered uh, strongly suggest that dr eastman's emails um, show that he helped donald trump advance a corrupt scheme to obstruct the counting of electoral college ballots and a conspiracy to impede the transfer power that's uh Representative bernie thompson i'm benny thompson and liz cheney um, who are the ranking members on that committee. You know what's interesting in that when I'm going, and even the fact that Bill Barr in this interview with Lester Holt is now all of a sudden revealing what it was like to be in the room with Trump the, just before he was um, told to resign. When And, and even in this book, um, you know, I was reading it today, chapter uh, 39. Uh, Barr tells Trump, you know, look, I'm sorry, chapter 33. There's nothing there. You, there's no, he was saying the Trump was saying, I saw boxes in Michigan and Detroit. And he said, Mr. President, the fact that you saw boxes doesn't mean anything because that's how they count the votes. They take them in. It's customary for them to do this early and around 6 a.m. where they take the boxes into to be counted. And so the fact that you or your supporters saw boxes does not indicate fraud. It's just what they do. You know? And so, you know, line after line, every time Trump bought up something, Barr would refute it. And Trump was getting fury infuriated with Barr. Right. So now there was a moment where Trump brings in Barr, and flanked to the table is Mark Meadows, two Trump lawyer, um, two White House lawyers, um, other representatives um, who are filling Trump with these ideas that there's hope somewhere that he can somehow steal the election. And Barr's on the other side, and Trump says, "Did you go on TV and say that there's no evidence of fraud?" And Barr said, "Yes." He said, "Why did you do that? Uh, because it's just true. There's nothing there." Well, you didn't have to say that. That's what he said. You didn't have to say that. Um, you could have just said no comment. And so now Barr is saying that, you know, he's giving more details in terms of what happened that time. I want to get your thoughts on what's going on, because oftentimes we've seen these investigations go on and and, and only to it to kind of cloud them or go over people's heads because it's so convoluted or complex. And at the end of the day, there's no specific tangible charge you can bring against Trump or any of his associates. But now we Apparently, there's some there there. Uh, any thoughts?
3: There was
2: there there was there was there there in impeachment one. There was there there in impeachment two. There was there there with the Mueller report. You know, we've seen this movie. Uh, <clears throat> the, the, the thing is, if the Democrats lose uh, the House in in November, um. This thing is over. Uh, this this investigation, no matter how dead to rights they have him, and they obviously have him dead to rights on a number of fronts. You know, the thing ends. Um, you know, after the election, um, it, it's it's incredible. But you know, and I hate to be so uh, cynical, but it is what it is. The
1: mean I mean, the ball shifts. The ball shifts to the court. Of Merrick Garland as Department of Justice. Does this investigation create sufficient facts to generate probable cause to charge the president or any number of other people with criminal offenses under the United States Code? And that is something that Merrick Garland is going to have to wrestle with as the head of the Justice Department. There are a lot of people. Well, let me let me not be down, let me not be Trumpian. There are there are lawyers I know who I've spoken to about this who've who've been criminal law practitioners, who worked in justice, who worked in the US Attorney's office, who don't believe Merrick Garland has the stones to prosecute Donald Trump. Not because there's not a crime, but because he doesn't believe in this. He is too much of an institutionalist to actually charge a former president with a crime. And that may be true and it may not. I, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, I hope he does have the stones, but. This may not go anywhere as we've just talked about, because not because there's not a crime there, but because the people who control the levels of power to prosecute him are unwilling to do that. Yeah, and this is the danger of
3: this so-called moderation. Um, it, because when, when the country is in the middle of a, a, a slow moving insurrection, it is not time to be moderate. Um, uh, and even if he does move to Stevens Point, it's already late. The time factor of this—if um, he starts moving now—the uh, the trial could possibly begin by the midterm elections, and I think that would be early. So, as Stephen says, even if he moves on it, you know, it, it would have to be in the, in the criminal realm because in the political realm, there is no, there will be no answer likely after November.
0: And and just to put in perspective in terms of what Dr. Eastman was proposing, this, was, this made Mike Lee, Ted Cruz's best buddy in the Senate, uh, who was a staunch conservative, staunch Tea Partier, he said that one of the proposals was, um, at the end, Pence announces that because of the ongoing disputes in seven states, there are no electors that can be deemed validly appointed to those states. That means the total number of electors appointed The language of the 12th Amendment is 454. This reading of the 12th Amendment has also been advanced by Harvard Law Professor, Lawrence Tribe. A majority of the electors appointed would therefore be 228. There at this point, 232 votes for Trump, 222 votes for Biden, Pence then gavels President Trump as re-elected. This was the most stark and and, and scary scenario to Mike Lee. And Mike Lee was trying to, to be the voice of reason. So, I mean, you could just imagine how, how bizarre, you know, th- this White House was in that transition period. Anyone else as we're closing?
4: We've seen this movie before, as uh, Professor Cook and Mr. Foster have all said, that uh, we've seen uh, all sorts of investigations into Trump's activities and with nothing. Um, so as, you know, as much information as the select committee has, I think they there's, you know, for me personally, I'm not going to believe Trump is going to face any kind of uh, personal or criminal accountability until I hear a jury of his peers say the words guilt say the word guilty. But one thing I believe personally is, is that the select committee has not done enough to make their case to the people, because that's the other thing that you need to do. You know, when you have this kind of counsel, you need to make it a spectacle. Like what the Republicans of Benghazi, they knew there was nothing there, but they knew that Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State at the time, was running for president and they didn't and they really didn't want it to have to say President Clinton again. So they made a spectacle out of what was nothing. Well, Democrats have something. Donald Trump, you know, stood at the Oval, uh, said, let's go in there and, you know, disturb this thing and let's, you know, make Mike Pence overturn the election. People came in and stormed the Capitol, overwhelmed the police presence that was there that was expecting, you know, fist fights and rocks and bottles and not tear gas and you know everything else they brought in there and you know so there is something but there's not there's no spectacle you know we haven't had a large scale of public hearings they haven't been announcing who they're bringing in to talk to there really has not been much on that front you know you need to convince it's not enough to convince a judge or a grand jury that you have a case you need to convince the people that you're doing this for that you have a case and the people that you're doing this for not just the American people, but the Democratic base that really wants to see Trump, you know, in a jumps in an orange jumpsuit.
0: Well, Professor Foster, Mr. Stephen Foster, Professor Fred Cook, Nate Honore, it has been a privilege and honor to have you all tonight. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. But just before we end, I did promise that I would reveal the answer to the question asked earlier about which U.S. president was responsible for convincing the uh, Olympic Committee uh, in 1980. Uh, you know, to withdraw from uh, engaging with, in the Olympics because of Russia's uh, invasion of the Soviet Union? The answer is President Jimmy Carter. And I want to congratulate uh, this Danielle, uh, Danielle Nicole. Please uh, go ahead and inbox me uh, your address. I'm going to send you one of these really nice masks. Uh, the political mic logo is on the mask. Um, we hope you enjoy it. Um, And again, thank you all for what you have brought to the show tonight. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. With that being said, um, have a good evening. Stay engaged and tune in next week. uh, Same time next week uh, to the political mic. Thank you guys so much.
1: Thank you.